Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. This week's guest on the Playmakers Playbook is a legend of South Australian football. He was the inaugural coach of the Adelaide Crows. And you'll have to forgive me for going a bit fanboy this week because he was a childhood hero of mine, playing 317 games with the Glenelg Football Club in the SANFL. And he went on to coach the Tigers in back-to-back premierships in 1985 and 1986. This is the Playmakers Playbook, brought to you by BuildCorp, celebrating 30 years of continual learning and successful partnering. Hello, I'm Nick McArdle, host of the Playmakers Playbook. If you want to be a better leader in business, sport or the everyday, or if you simply just love a good story, this podcast is for you. Graham Studley Corns is synonymous with South Australian football, a member of the South Australian Football Hall of Fame and the Australian Football Hall of Fame. Nowadays, he's just as famous for being the father of Port Power legends Chad and Kane Corns. And for more than 20 years, he's been a leading figure in the South Australian media. My earliest memory of Cornsey goes back 47 years. Kick back towards the goal square again. Corns from behind. He's grabbed it. Corns mark. A magnificent mark. Oh, that was one of the freak marks of the year. And I'll tell you what, if he caps it off with a goal here, that will put them one point in front. The kick by Corns is on its way. Right. Here it's through. And Corns has put that goal his first, incidentally, on the board. There it is, the year of the Tiger, ladies and gentlemen. In one of the greatest moments of Graham Corn's football career, the 1973 SANFL Grand Final against North Adelaide, and uh, that goal late in the last quarter to put Glenelg in front of the Tigers won their first premiership since 1934. Graham Corns, welcome to the Playmakers Playbook. Thank you, Nick. I'm not sure if I'm worthy, but I'm glad to be here. Oh, it's good to, good to have you and good to have a chat. Um, where does that moment in 1973, where does that sit in your list of, your long list of great moments throughout your, your playing and coaching career? Well, it's, you know, it's a grand final. It's the only, I played in eight grand finals, would you believe, and I only won one. Uh, and that was it. And we nearly lost that. Uh, we hadn't, we'd been beaten once all year and and the game was slipping away. So, and I hadn't done much that, that day. So I just had to do something. As John Kennedy would say, do something, you know. And uh, it stuck on the chest and it, you know, went it sort of wobbled through really as a, something like it was, Unbelievable, particularly what it brought to Glenelg, and and the fact that it's that it stayed in the memory. It, it, it often comes up. It was the last game we played at Adelaide Oval before they moved to Footy Park. It was one of the great games of Australian football, and it, it, it still stands the test of time if you go and look at it. So yeah, it's it's it's, it's right up there. For all your loyalty and uh, and love for all things South Australia, you were actually born in Victoria, am I right? Yeah, I tried to keep that a secret for many years, but it just kind of bubbles out now. Now, now I just get assailed with it. People say, "Yeah, well, you're Victorian." Well, I'm not. You know, I was seven years old when I came here, and I grew up as a South Australian. Now, when I left home, I left home to go to work in Wyala uh, when I was 16. And my, my folks and my two brothers they moved back to Geelong. They moved 
to back to Victoria to Geelong. So they are Victorian, but I'm South Australian. So don't don't accuse me of being Victorian. <laughs> I'll, I'll take it very personally. <laughs> Not that I don't love them. I do love them, and uh, given their particular circumstances at the moment i have some empathy for them exactly right it's uh, it's tough times uh, across the border isn't it um uh, would you describe your childhood as as tough because as i understand it your your parents had a fairly acrimonious divorce yeah well you don't oh, I, I wasn't expecting to go here but you don't i uh, think back you know when you're growing up as a kid you don't realize you're, you're you're doing it tough but when i look back my parents did have a really nasty divorce you know um and uh and i was sent to boarding school we weren't from a wealthy family at all but dad took two jobs uh, he had custody of me and uh, he i was sent to a boarding school when i was seven uh, six or seven maybe six six turning seven at ivanhoe grammar school which you know we weren't a private school family at all and I obviously didn't like it so much. Well, I remember that's where I got my first pair of football boots. My auntie for my seventh birthday brought in a pair of footy boots. And I remember playing my first game of footy at on one of the Ivanhoe grounds. But I disliked it so much. And I would write to my mother telling her how much I liked it. And then one night in the middle of the night, in the dormitory, there was this match struck in my face. And, uh, and this voice said, is that you, Graham? And I knew straight away it was my mother. So she's picked me up and she's taken, she's carried me out of the dormitory and she's absolutely actually abducted me from the dormitory. <laughs> so I don't know what happened the next morning. And I've, I've often tried to ring the school and get the records um, just to see what the, the comments were next morning of this kid's missing. But then we were on the run, like effectively on the run because um, she would threaten me that if I was naughty, she'd send me back to my father. So he, he couldn't know where we were. My father wasn't a bad man at all. Um, and so, but after about 12 months of that, or some time of that, she just said, look, I can't look after you. She was a single mother. She had no income. Uh, you'll have to go back to your father. So she dropped me off at Flinders Street Railway Station where my grandmother was. And my grandmother then took me out to this children's home. I guess it was an orphanage because there was kids in it. And my little brother, Wayne, who was four years younger, he was only three then, he was in a cot in the matron's um, uh, bedroom. I, we don't know how long he'd been there. He's the one, who, he's the one who's really scarred by it because he doesn't know how long he was in this orphanage. But anyway, it was only a, a week or so. Dad came and got us and we moved, we drove over to, to Adelaide and I was raised in Adelaide, but Dad was a working, he was a roof tiler. We lived in a, uh, we built a block, we bought a block of land at Rinello, built a tin shed there and we lived in that for three years before the house was built. So we were, Working class kids growing up in effectively growing up at Rinella, which was a country town. I guess it was uh, character building. Is that a fair thing to say? And I was lucky. We had good education. We got fed at night. We got clothes. Had a bed to sleep in. And um, and when when you left school, um, you had a job. You could, it was pretty easy to find a job. So I was lucky in that sense. So I guess it was tough. Well, they, yeah. Well, it, it sounds like it. It's um, it's probably not not your your average childhood. And the reason for the question is, I'm wondering how that, with leadership in mind, how did that sort of form who you became? Well, I don't know. I, I, they say it forms you. I I didn't see my mother for thirty odd years, so um, there's a there's an issue there. There was definitely an issue about the relationship I had with mother. And when I did finally 
um, reconcile with her and meet up with her. And she died fairly soon after that. So um, I don't know, I feel guilty about that. But it, there was an independence there, I, I think. <clears throat> Dad was, Dad loved footy. Uh, he, he didn't play and he, could ne he never came and saw me play, but he did imbue in me uh, a great sense of the history of the game. He would talk about, you know, he was for a brief time in Victoria uh, in, a, in another life. He was a policeman. He talked about Jack Dyer. He worked with Jack Dyer. He told me stories about Roy Kazaley and John Coleman and those, you know, so he, and he showed me a photo of Bob Pratt taking a, an enormous mark back in the thirties. And so immediately that was that the love of the game imbued in me and he'd had it when he could he'd have a kick with me in the in the paddock but how did it shape me um i think i'm a pain in the neck because i want to do my things my own way i think i think that's you know people who've had some sort of coaching experience and or leadership can be a bit uh, dogmatic and stubborn and perhaps arrogant i'm not sure i mean um but uh, it certainly helps you form your own opinions. You've got, you've got to have strong opinions, put it that way. Yeah, maybe not, not arrogant, but, but believing that your way is the best way a lot of the time. Would that be fair? Well, that is, that, that's exactly right. And, and I would often, when Neil Curley was my coach, one of the great South Australian footballers, one of the great leaders, a man who, who was born to lead. I mean, leaders, leadership comes in many different forms. And, 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 but Neil Curley was born to lead and and you would follow him anywhere but we would argue about things and how how things were done and then when someone like john halbert came to coach he was a totally different personality that he had more of a school teacher uh, collegiate approach uh, or when john nichols came john nichols came out of carlton it was it was, it was very basic and uh, my strong opinions did often cause me to clash with the coaches i had even the ones that i had and still have the most uh, utmost respect for. One thing that Curls said about you was that you sought improvement all the time, that uh, you were, to an extent, a, a perfectionist. You just wanted to get better and better and better. That's that's something that's innate, isn't it? No, honestly, I think you learn that. I think you acquire that. <clears throat> Some people are like that. I mean, but I, over the, the athletes and the high achievers that I've studied over the years, I reckon as of our population, only about four or five percent of those people are really tr truly self-motivated. Somebody who can you can set the task for and leave them to their own devices. There's not many who do it uh, without taking the easy way out. And I put myself in that category. But as Australians, if you give us a task to do and you, and you clearly define it and you outline the, the the path to success and you lead us well, there's nothing we can't achieve. But you leave a the guys I've coached. Maybe a handful. I could say I could really leave it to their own devices, and I'll give you a couple of examples. Tony Hall, when when he did his knee, like uh, he he was, you could leave him to his own. Mark Bickley, someone like Ben Hart, uh, Mark Rashudo. I mean, uh, but other guys need to be strongly led, and that and that's uh, a coaching style from a, another era. It's, it's different these days, but in in, I was emerging from the from the era of the truly dictatorial autocratic coach where they would could abuse you and yell at you and drive you to succeed. Now it's much more collaborative, but um, I don't think I was a perfectionist by any stretch of the imagination. I wish I could go back now. I look back and wish I could go back. I could have been much more skillful. I could have been stronger. I, 
you know, I could have been more determined around the ball. You look at how midfielders play these days and, and uh, you know, I'd love to, I'd love to have that time again, knowing what I know now, but I guess it's all part of the learning development process. And development of the game too. I mean, you know, it's it's a very different game nowadays. Just quickly, the army. You were constricted, conscripted rather, into the army. You went to to yeah. Vietnam in the late sixties. How did that uh, help you become <laughs> the person you are today? You learn the value of discipline. Even though I wasn't great at adhering, I hated being told to do what do. I hated being told what. Excuse me, what to do by. Oh, some of these people were. Some of the NCOs would yell at you and scream at you, and they were. They could be very average people, if you know what I mean. And and the the way they uh, dehumanised you and abused you. I think that the idea is to strip you down and build you up, so that you follow orders without question. Well, I couldn't really do that, but I did learn the value of discipline. I did learn the value of having to work in a team. You needed to rely on the other guy. You needed to be dependable. I did learn that you, you can always do more. You can you, when you think you're exhausted, when you can't take another step, you can. You know, you just can do it. There's, there's nothing you can't achieve. So, I was. Um, <clears throat> I was charged three times for various things. I did seven days in the military prison in Bung Tau, the, the military military detention barracks. So it was quite an experience. I, mean, I, I was actually jailed for seven days, and uh, that's about the only time I kept my mouth shut and behaved myself. When I ate everything that was put in front of me. It was, <clears throat> but it was a travesty of. of I, I, was, I, I was going to say, I have to ask, what what did you do to be <laughs> to end up behind bars in Bung Tau? It's a longish story, but I'll tell you quickly. We'd been on operation. It was for disobeying a command, which I didn't do, but we'd been on operation. I was in a mortar platoon at the time, which wasn't a bad job. Um, I didn't end up in a mortar platoon, but uh, we came back off operation. We were about to go on leave, and our section was on duty. We had an open-air movie theatre in the rubber trees 100 metres down from our base, our mortar base, and I said to the NCO, my corporal, I said, look, I'm just going to the movies. I'm going to be on the radio at 10 o'clock. I'll be back for that. He said, do you think you should go? I said, well, look, look if there's a fire mission, just there's a landline. I'll be back in 10 seconds. When I got back, uh, the, the, the platoon commander had chucked, chucked a wobbly and he charged everybody. And I got charged with disobeying a command. And I thought I'd get a fine or a reprimand but the, 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 the battalion commander uh, said, look, I have to make an example of you. So he fined me 40 bucks, which we were getting paid $55 a week with combat allowance, 40 bucks. I think that's a bit stiff. Seven days loss of pay. I'm thinking, my God, this is expensive. And seven days detention in the detention barracks of Long Town. So next minute I'm in a paddy wagon. I'm driving. It wasn't, and it wasn't luxurious. It wasn't the Hilton. It wasn't, it wasn't even the Bangkok Hilton. It was this, it was this thing built out of sleepers and steel cage and barbed wire on top of this sand hills over Vung Tower. But anyway, you learn the lesson. <laughs> You're here to tell the tale. Um, 317 games for Glenelg between yeah. 1967 and 1982. Who were the great leaders? And I think you've mentioned one of them already, Neil Curley. But on and off the field, the, the men who, um, particularly in those early days, really shaped you and that you might have learned some lessons from. Well, I mentioned Neil Curley. I mean, he's a great leader and still is. I mean, anyway, we just recently we went up, uh, Mark Rashida, myself, uh, Mark Stone, the coach from L, we went up to Walker Flat when Neil Curley's retired and we sat talking footy in today's footy. But he he had a, 
he had an obvious strength of leadership, which just he just exuded. And you look at his history, you don't, but there were other guys. Peter Marker was our captain. He was a classy guy. Laurie Rosewan was a vice captain. Harry Kernahan, of course. Uh, then, then, then there were the, the, the club presidents, guys like John H. Ellers and Graham Bignall, who were really successful. All of these people have an influence on you and you try and learn from them. And as I said, I, some leaders are born. Others uh, are, are taught how to be a leader. Others just grow into the role. So others are just thrust into the role. So I don't think there's any template for leadership at all. I mean, but because all leaders, leaders come in very different form and your leadership has so many different styles. I think you have to find your own style that you are comfortable with. What, uh, what are some of the things that, that you learned that you, that you were a sponge with those guys and, and really took on and, and, uh, and helped you become the leader and, and ultimately the coach that you became? Well, you form your own style and, and you and you start to think, you know, I, I was, Neil Curley was, you know, the, the strength of loyalty, the, 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 the importance of commitment, that full-blooded commitment it was a physical game. Then. And you look back at some of the vision of when we played it, you're like, God, how did I play this game? Curls was all about full-blooded physical commitment, sense of team and sharing. I was only with Ron Barassi for six, for six months and I couldn't wait to get there. But I was right at the end of my career. I was turning 31, but he was, Ron Barassi was the coach. And Ron Barassi's style was, I didn't appreciate it. You know, the, the, he, he came from old school, 50s, 60s. The Len, uh, Norm Smith was his mentor. So, and he could be a, as great as his record is, he could be quite cruel and cutting in his comments. And Barass could be that. But he had at the same time a greater appreciation of, uh, that, uh, that as Australian rules footballers, we, we weren't skillful enough. So that was something that I took really, really seriously because we weren't skillful enough and they're still not skillful enough. You know, they still don't spend enough time. So I took that and I amplified that uh, when, I, when I started coaching. It was a really important part. But my, my time at North Melbourne couldn't be regarded as, as a success. I only played five games. If you didn't play well enough because of the talent there, you're out. So I had a decision to make. It was probably the, the right decision, but my my memories of the time at North Melbourne, the blokes I met and the time under Barassi was really impressive and really formative. There was no doubt about that. I don't think you're the sort of bloke who has regrets, but you were 31. Like you say, you were turning 31 when you went. Why didn't you go earlier? Give yourself a a better crack at it. I don't know. I I, I was almost contracted for now. It was always difficult to get out of the contract because they always said, no, you know, we'll we'll take you to court we won't let you go but uh in the end uh in the end i just went and i'm glad i did i mean it's um there's there's no doubt about it because we, we did we did learn a lot under barass you know the school thing was one thing but the physical component of the game is also another one you, you, you can't be skillful unless you're tough if you're a skillful team and you can apply the physical component of the game and you're fearless and you can impart fear and apprehension to, to, to your opponents by your sheer will and, the, uh, and, and attack on the ball, you have an advantage. So, But every team these days is tough. And some years um, after you returned to South Australia, your, your mind turned to coaching, um, firstly a couple of years with South Adelaide, and, and then you returned to Glenelg. You won premierships in 1985 and 1986, and they were the first since that kick of yours in 1973. 
Well, it didn't come easily. Like, we had great players. You know, when you talk about Stephen Kernan, Chris McDermott, and uh, Tony McGuinness um, in that first year. So they just needed straightening out. They'd, they'd made the preliminary final the year before. So there's a bit of pressure when you take over as a coach when the team the year before has won the preliminary final. So there was only one acceptable outcome, um, and that was to win a premiership. And, and it, did, it didn't come easily, but they knuckled down and... You know, they were, they were a great side. And Stephen Cunningham was a great player. But he, he and Tony McGuinness left after 85. So the, everyone thought, well, we'd struggle. But we were able to back it up again in 86 as well. Cornsey, you played uh, for South Australia 21 times. You were an All-Australian in 1979-1980. Um, you coached South Australia for eight years. Nine wins from 11 matches, including six wins from eight games against Victoria. What's so good about beating Victoria? Well, the, the thing about that is I never played – I played 21 state games. I never played in a winning game against Victoria. We got close a few times. And along with uh, other aspects of coaching, I, I tried to work out why that was. Why could we not beat we, – we got close. We played Adelaide Oval, a great game. Alex Jezalenko kicked 10 goals. Phil Carmen was playing. Barry Robin was playing. Russell Ebert was playing. You know, great players. Um, but – we couldn't beat them. You know, played them on the MCG and went down. And uh, it was our inferiority complex. We, we weren't scared of them, but deep down inside, we had this inferiority complex. We didn't think we didn't think we were, we were as good as them. So when I was appointed coach of the state side, it was state of origin as well. So we had good players coming back, but I was still determined we had the, the sample uh, feel. So was, we had at least half of the, the players were still sample-based. So that, that was important to us. But the fact is we had to convince players that they were as good as the Victorians. They, 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 these people weren't supermen. If we could apply the strengths that we had, exploit the strengths that we had, without getting caught up with having to be tough or mean or think we had to fight somebody, when you're playing against Dermot Brereton, you know, you've, you've got to stand up to these guys. And you know, So... But we would do it in a way that wasn't natural. Well, I did tell Martin Leslie one day that if, if he, if Dermot Brown niggles you, just turn around and whack him. We didn't think he'd do it, but he did. So <laughs> it, was, it was one of the great moments. Dermot hates me talking about it. I know he hates me talking about it, but Martin Leslie took it right up to him. But but it's an inspirational thing. But without getting distracted from the real issue, which was winning the ball first and using it effectively. You've got to win the ball first. If you can't win the ball and you can't control the ball and you can't use it effectively, you're not going to win anything. You come to a point in your career where you're given the opportunity to be part of something very special, part of something new, and that being the Crows. You were the inaugural Crows coach. What did you take to that job? What, what were the qualities that you brought to that job? Well, I had to deal with my own hypocrisy for a start because you know we'd been dealing with the the spectre of uh, a South Australian team being lured into the AFL to join the VFL. It wasn't the AFL then for a couple of years. And uh, they, you know, the VFL had been, the VFL was, the clubs were bankrupt. They needed, they needed monies from other states. They needed the, the license fees from Sydney and from the West Coast and from Adelaide. South Australia wasn't just going to be lured into the VFL just to settle their debts, just to pay a license fee. So we were holding out. At the same time, all of our players are being drafted over there 
Um, so they they did the divide and conquer thing, approached Port Adelaide, approached Norwood. Port Adelaide fell for it and said, yeah, signed a heads of agreement. We're going to the VFL, big thing over here. You you were probably in Adelaide at the time, were you? Yeah, I left in that? I left in uh, 1991. So, yeah, I, I remember. So you, should, you remember how 1990, how tumultuous that was and how we all hated Port Adelaide and so we had no choice in the end um, the, the Sandville had to put a team in but I, so all these years of railing against joining it we can't join the VFL all we're going to do is bolster there all of it, and I'm asked to coach I, I had to apply I had to apply for the job as did John Cale Port Adelaide's coach um, so I had to deal with that sense of hypocrisy but then it was just a matter of preparing the guys we had a you know, we, had, we could only pick South Australians, which in a sense wasn't a bad thing, but it did restrict us in terms of who, who, who we could recruit. We, we weren't formed until uh, the first week of November. So we had from November, December, and then we started tra- playing trial games in January. So, um, But it was just a matter of setting a program. Those guys never get enough credit because they worked 13 days out of 14, including weight sessions in the morning, 13 days out of 14, They'd never worked as hard. None of them had contracts. Uh, perhaps maybe Tony McGuinness coming back, Danny Hughes coming back. Those guys might have had contracts. But the other guys worked hard without, without any promise of a contract. And um, I, they had my utmost admiration. And then we played a couple of trial games. We played in, um, played Essendon, came to town, and, and we beat them. Fifth, and nobody was, no one was really taking the Crows seriously up until then. It was just a bit of a... A sideshow down at West Lakes, where you know that we were uh, going to the AFL, and then then Kevin Sheedy, as smart as he was, said, "Well, we'll play in a trial game. Uh, just give us uh, five hundred grand in cash, and we'll take it back." So, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how much they did. They took an enormous amount of money home in a brown paper bag because there was forty-two thousand people turned up, and then it got serious. And we played in the preseason comp. We beat Geelong, and we did okay, but. Our first game against Hawthorne was just one of those games. Beautiful night. Everything went to plan. Guys played well. Game plan worked. The Crows have really done everything right tonight. I, I haven't found a cheat in the side as the siren goes. Lidner will want to finish it off. He shoots towards goal. Oh, he finishes it off all right. A marvellous victory. To the Adelaide Crows, Bruce Lidner finishes the night with four goals. And an 86-point win to the Adelaide Crows in their AFL home and away debut. One more standing ovation for these 20 players. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com style. What were your non-negotiables early on? If if those players wanted to be part of your setup, what were the values they had to live by? You know the the demands that you made on them. Yeah, well, I I don't think I was as ruthless as you know, I, 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 I talk to Blighty often, and listen, Blighty's Blighty's got a spot over here 
and I hope you get him on your on your podcast because he he's fantastic. He's just totally brutal and ruthless with his non-negotiables. And um, look, you had to have a sense of team. There's no that you you had to understand that you were part of a team. And and if you were player number twenty one or player twenty two in my day, player number twenty, player number twenty was as important as player number one. The team had to recognise that that it's a team game. It's the most complete team game in the world. I, I believe it was. You had to apply. You, you couldn't take shortcuts. I I did. I detested guys who took shortcuts. If we do runs, you know, you might run around a uh, West Lakes, but the, or around the the, the, the River Torrens, around the Tan in Melbourne, if you want to use that. There's always somebody looking to take a shortcut. I, I detested them. If, and if, if I could detect a player taking a shortcut, the whole squad had to do it again. And if it was a 10K run and somebody took a shortcut, you'd do it again. So that was non-negotiable. You had to understand the skills of the game were absolutely vital. And, and you could not spend enough time uh, working on the skills of the game. I uh, The first training session I had with the guys, I said, look, who can juggle? Can anyone juggle football? Juggle I'll give you three footballs. Can anyone juggle them? And, and nobody could. I said, look, if i got a soccer player out here, just watch what he can do with a, 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 an elite soccer player, not even an elite soccer player. Look what he can do with the ball, how they can bounce it on their feet, on their, on their balance. And all that. I said, why don't we have those sort of skills? Greg Norman, who was the number one golfer in the world at the time, I said, he would hit a thousand golf balls a day. How many of you guys would kick a football 10 times a day? So, learning to embrace the skills of the game and how hard you had to work to develop your skills was, was really important. And the one quality that I wanted, you know, we, you can be quicker, you can be stronger, there's no... But unless you are desperate in your attack on the ball, which means that if the football between you and your opponent, you are more determined than him to win it, desperation to win that ball is was an absolutely vital commodity. So there's... And I think given the number of guys with beautiful skills who, who don't quite make it compared to the guys with average skills who do make it, you can see that you know, desperation probably, you've got to be a good footballer, but, but nobody gets to a, an AFL without being a, a good footballer. Just some are better than others. But without that quality of desperation to win the contest, you're not going to be the complete footballer. A bit of mongrel uh, sometimes helps, doesn't it? It's, it's almost an intangible thing. It is even even Mr. Nice guy, and there's I mean I know nice footballers, and the, there was no nicer footballer, no nicer man than Barry Robin, the great Barry Robin, no nicer man. But he was he would compete with the guys I coached, someone like Rodney Maynard at at, uh, at the Crows, and no nicer guy than Rodney Maynard. But he in his attack on the ball, he he had a mongrel trait about him, you know, nice guys, but. They had that element of mongrel. It means they just they just refused to be beaten. And great teams have that quality where they just refuse to be beaten. So you've talked about uh, your, your non-negotiables. What style of leader were you throughout this time? And I, and I guess that that might have developed from, you know, when you first took up the the job of coaching. And I, I note that you captained Glenelg in '78. But when, when you first went to South Adelaide, and then when you eventually finished at the Crows. That, that might have changed throughout that time. But essentially, what style of leader were you? Oh, look, I think I was... You, 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 honestly, you can't see yourself as others see you. 
Um, and I wouldn't try to because it, can, it might be ugly. You know, my last year at the Crows, we, we started with such high expectations. We, we played in the prelim final the year before and, and probably should have won it when you, think, when, you, when you look back at that, 42 points up at half time. So you look at the lessons you've learned from that, but it didn't go to plan the following year. The following year, we were supposed to go one better and get into the grand final. So, so when it started to go a bit wonky, and I backed off being quite as critical and uh, of, of players. Uh, Chris McDermott, who was captain at the time, would would say that I that I instead of giving players a serve, I would back off and sort of perhaps put my arm around them, which seems to be the modern practice. It's much more consultative these days, and you see guys like Damien Hardwick and Nathan Buckley, the way they they coach. It's you know they're Mr. Nice guys. Um, and that didn't work for me in 1994. So when I when I was sacked, I thought, well, could I have done it differently? Maybe I should have stuck to my, my original plans, but my, my original way of doing things. So I think your coaching style, and initially I was autocratic, do it my way. Uh, and then it gradually morphed into a slightly more consultative. So I think if to answer the question, I think I was very much an, autocr an autocratic coach with a, perhaps a little bit more empathy than the Neil Curleys or Ron Brassies and the, and the like. I wonder what, if, if Tom Hafey or, or Ron Barassi or, or Curls, for example, uh, were of this generation, I wonder whether they would be very different coaches. They'd have to be very different coaches, wouldn't no, they? Well, well, there's no doubt they would be. I mean, but you, you, this, this, this hasn't happened overnight. All of us, we didn't have one, one day we didn't have Ron Baressi and the next day we had Damien Hardwick. Now, bear in mind, Damien Hardwick, um, in 2017, in round 16, I think, Richmond were beaten by St Kilda by 10 goals. Damien Hardwick was, he could have lost his job. He, he could quite easily, they, were they in the eight? I don't think they were in the eight even then. Now, he could have lost his job now. They win the flag at the end of the year, mm. and then and since have been a powerhouse. So, in the meantime, we've had Mick Malthouse. I think Mick Malthouse, perhaps old school. You know, um, now we've got Nathan Buckley, Damien Hardwick, and they're, they're all they're all Mister Nice Guy. <laughs> coach, <laughs> coaches aren't the template of a coach isn't to be Mister Nice Guy, but obviously that's the that's the new age. Since footy, uh, or, or since coaching, really over the last 20 years or so, two decades, um, you've been the leader of the footy conversation or one of the leaders of the footy conversation in South Australia. How does that sit with you? Is it almost a, a privilege after what you achieved in the coach's box and, and on, the, on the park? It's a privilege to have the opportunity. I mean, I, I, I never, ever take that for granted. You know, I... Do comments for Channel Seven, and I still write a column for the Advertiser, which is, which I really appreciate. The fact you can, I mean, the the written word is so more, much more significant than the, the spoken word. And I work on, I've worked on Five AA, not full time these days, but a little bit of part time stuff. Well, it's just being able to give your opinion. Don't we all love to give our opinion about footy and sport? And I'm fortunate to have the platform, and it doesn't always suit particularly the Port Adelaide supporters, they don't always appreciate your comments. But, and well, that's, that's, so oh, that's, that's still me. going, is it? That's still going. Well, I, I had to go soft on them for a while. But when Chad and Kane were playing, I had, I had to back off But <laughs> since they've retired. Although Chad's still an assistant coach there, so I still can't go really hard at Port Adelaide because they, 
Ah, uh, they're just they're worse than Collingwood supporters, to be honest. You know, you know what I mean by that. I mean it in the nicest way. So, so like, yeah, it's definitely a privilege to have, but it's just a, you know, you, it does it does keep you current. That's the important thing, I and mean, it keeps you up to date with what's happening. Even though your your attitudes might be a little bit old school, and your opinions might be old school, but uh, you know, there's still a lot of people out there who share the attitudes. You're talking about you're talking about Chad there, and and obviously Kane has a profile now in the media as well, and and you would have been incredibly proud about what they achieved uh, in their careers, but continuing on, I guess, in their dad's footsteps in a way, because they're now turning into, (laughs) they're turning into, um, you know, opinion leaders in the game as well, having an influence post-career. It's pretty special for them. Well, Kane is, but Kane is dangerously close at times to getting himself excluded from the will, you know, to such (laughs) Such when he picks on Taylor Walker and he picks on the Crows and the, you've got to back off a bit, son. And Chad, Chad, Chad's interesting. He came back from Sydney and he didn't have anywhere to live, so he, he lived in our back room for a little while. And he was coaching the Port Adelaide Magpies, and when they they're the deadly enemy. So, but I'd come home from work and there's all these Port Adelaide jumpers on the on the clothesline. I had to walk past them every night. So, so that was. Uh, but Chad's much more. Balanced because he he can't be perceived as uh, he can't tell me anything because there can't be any leaks on the footy club. So I just sort of have to I just have to watch him from a distance. He lives he lives just down the road from us, so he's he's always here for food, and he just eats an, an enormous amount. So we see a lot more of Chad than we do of Kane. But no, Kane Kane surprised me actually how uh, you know eloquent he can be and how, and, he, and he writes well and he's opinionist and he sticks to his opinion these days. And I was like, goodness me, I don't know whether he got that from me or not, but uh, he, he ventures into areas that I would not go. No, he's he's, he's very good, um, no doubt about that. And just as we wrap up, um, the crows of the modern day and uh, and Matthew Nix, obviously who I know reasonably well from uh, the Sydney Footy Club. Um, how tough is that job and, and what is their immediate future? Because clearly at the moment, they're struggling. Uh, we're speaking in, uh, what is July 19? It's uh, July 2020. Uh, it's the worst period the Crows have ever had. Uh, he's, he's, taken, he's taken the club over at the worst possible time. You know, we, we've had the, club, the, the Crows have never bottomed out and they've had to deal with, they've got to, They've got to finals consistently, so we have high expectations. We got to the 2017 grand final, went in as favourite, started well, for some reason just fell in a hole and Richmond ran over them. And then they blame the collective minds camp for that. I think it's a convenient excuse. The guys who are struggling will look for that as a reason. The guys who are still here and were on the campsite were positive and beneficial. So it's a combination of um, timing the recruiting's been a problem. Even though they recruited well, they just haven't been able to retain them. When you look at players that have left, guys like Dangerfield, Lever, Eddie Betts, Charlie Cameron, what a what a beauty. And some have left for positive reasons. Others, um, you know, just left because they got, they got more money. And they had the, the salary cap and draft concessions after or restrictions after the Kurt Tibbetts saga. Um, so Matthew Nix has arrived at the club at, at the worst possible time when there was a disconnect last year between the coach, the, the football department and some players. This notorious review exposed that. So the, 
key, key players in that, in that saga have gone. So Matthew Nix has arrived with the mandate that he has to you know, build relationships and uh, you've got, it's got to be consultative. So he's, he spent the summer putting his arm around players. But I think he probably ignored the fact you've got to be tough footballers as well. You've got to be skillful. You've got to be prepared for the contest. And they were, they've been woeful in the first few games, a little bit more competitive in recent weeks in the, the, the last week's game as we speak, which was against Fremantle, but still on the bottom of the ladder. We're not ready for that as Crows fans. You know, they're not ready for that. But I fear for the next year and a half, it's going to be a bit like that until they can take advantage of early draft picks and perhaps rebuild a team. I hate the word rebuilding because you should always go into a season with the, um, uh, you know, with the prospect of playing finals. But he has to rebuild that team and it's going to be very, very difficult. I hope he can stay the course and I hope people are, are patient with him because footy fans and footy administrations are notoriously impatient. Exactly. And I have to say, uh, as a as South Australian looking from the distance, um, particularly when it comes to the Crows, there's a, can be a, a lack of patience because the, the city rises and falls on their footy teams, don't they? It does. I think we're a bit a bit more understanding, but you're dealing with uh, the people from out. You put Adelaide fan, put Adelaide on top of the ladder. Crows at the bottom. Do you think that's very pleasant to be an Adelaide? At the <laughs> so. Certainly not for you, Graham Corns. Hey, listen. Thanks yeah. so much for your time, Cornsy. It's terrific to uh, to catch up. Just so good to spend some time. Well, Nick, I I, I do see you. I, I was a bit worried about you. I thought you'd d- defected to rugby, but. Um, <laughs> It's good to good to see you still got an interest in the in the in the great Australian game. Always an interest. Um, Cornsy, thanks so much. Thanks for joining us on the Playmakers Playbook. Thanks, Nick. All the best, mate. Graham Corns on the Playmakers Playbook, a huge influence on so many careers and still influencing the conversation. If you have even a passing interest in Australian rules football, search him up on YouTube. He was one of the best overhead marks you'll ever see. The Playmakers Playbook is brought to you by BuildCorp, where great teams are built on shared values. It's available wherever you get your favourite podcasts, including iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts and Deezer. Make sure you subscribe so you will never miss an episode. And as always, if you like what you've heard today, give us a five-star rating or simply tell a friend. I look forward to your company next week on The Playmakers Playbook. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.